You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Angelica. Joining me is the editor of Black Girl Nerds, Jamie Broadnecks. And today we are speaking with writer and activist, Solai Abrams. Hi, Solai. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, so, Jamie, did you want to take it away? Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I'm so thrilled and honored to have you here to talk to us at Black Girl Nerds many years ago. And I can't recall the year because so much time has passed. But um, I remember that we had spoke about your organization, Truth and Reality, which challenges racial stereotypes in media. We had done a Twitter chat with Black Girl Nerds. That's and right. Talked, yeah, we had talked about a lot with um, the work that you're doing. And, and I, I know you're still continuing that work. So I'm curious, how much has evolved since the last time we did that Twitter chat and the last time we spoke? I want to say it's been at least at least four or five years. Since yeah, well... Well, I have been on hiatus from Truth and Reality since I was accepted as the McBride Scholar at Bryn Mawr College. So um, I am a nerd. I am a Black girl nerd, always was. <laughs> I, um, and I was very fortunate to, uh, to have a love of reading young, but I... I only completed ninth grade in high school and I got my GED at 15. So at the age of 47, I went to college and um, it's been an amazing, it's been an amazing experience. So uh, next year I'm graduating um, and I'm double major in political science and sociology. Congratulations. It's never too late. <laughs> Thank you. It's never too late. 50 years old. I'm <laughs> there in my cap and gown. God willing. <laughs> <laughs> so while I'm in school, um, as you know, many people are familiar, it's incredibly grueling. And so um, the, I have been on hiatus on, all, on everything related to the organization, but we'll take it back up. Uh, once I finish. Absolutely. Um, I'm in school too. I'm 30. So uh, you're giving me a lot of hope right now. So. <laughs> 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 um, so I actually uh, wanted to bring up your upbringing. I understand it was kind of um, different, uh, actually a little bit similar to mine. You grew up in Hawaii. Your mother is of uh, Chinese descent. And it wasn't until you were 14 or so that you discovered, you know, your, your father's um, history. Um, so how, how for you, how was that like kind of transition to almost, I wouldn't say to a new identity, but it is something new about yourself. And how did you translate that and how you communicate with others? 
So I was born in Hawaii and raised between Southern California and Central Florida. So the the time that I spent in Southern California, uh, it was a a relatively normal experience. Uh, I mean, I grew up in, in a very diverse neighborhood in Anaheim. Um, we lived in the Orange County area. And so I had never, I never experienced racism. And then when I moved to Florida, we were in a predominantly white environment and white schools. And it was there that I became very aware of the fact that I was different. Um, my family, the family that raised me is white. And so in many respects, my upbringing would be similar to that of a transracial adoptee. Mm -hmm except my parents uh, because of because of some complications between in my uh, parents marriage and when I say parent I mean the man who raised me um, and my biological mother they opted to obscure the fact that he wasn't my father because they didn't want me to feel different from my siblings but, you know, things happen in families, right? Families right. are secrets and babies get passed off all the time. As right. being, um, you know, a, a, a man's child. But in my case, it was a challenging lie, quite frankly, to, to maintain because my biological father is black. Right. And the older I got, the darker my skin got, my hair became extremely curly. And they always said the reason, when I was very young, they said the reason why my skin was darker than my siblings was because I was Hawaiian. I was, I was born in Hawaii. And my siblings are Eurasian. So uh, my brother is actually white passing. Um, and, and so in terms of the reckoning, it was, it was, it was very shocking and painful because we in this country grow up being bombarded with mess, anti-black messaging mm -hmm. and being in a very racist environment and then finding out that your biological father is black and therefore you're black, um, it was it, it was it was it was it was really hard. It was really a hard thing to accept. I denied it. I didn't tell anyone save a few very close friends um, when I was a teenager because I was terrified that the racism that I already was experiencing would become increased. Uh, I was already being called the N word, so. And I would say, well, I'm Hawaiian. Well, you know, and so it, you know, for, for years I didn't feel safe because I was physically and verbally um, 
I was hit, spit on, and called names. Um, and I didn't feel safe enough to really embrace my blackness until I left Central Florida and moved to New York. Um, so the idea of double consciousness is something that I'm acutely aware of. Um, and I have an insight into how incredibly, how, how racist our society is being on the other side and privy to the conversations that white people will say when uh, black people aren't around, but also the damaging effects that people who, of white people like my parents, um, and I say my parents because my biological mother and my father split when I was four and um, he remarried a white woman um, who raised me, that how damaging it is for well-intentioned white people to adopt this post-racial, we're all human, all lives matter, pre-all lives matter stance when raising um, black children. Right. Wow. That, mm. that is so profound. And it, it you, you kind of see it from all sides, basically, because of that. So I, mm -hmm. I definitely can relate to that. Jamie? And it's interesting, too, because, um, as I mentioned before, at the opening, you're you know, the organization Truth and Reality um, challenges racial stereotypes in media. And right now, obviously, everybody's, the forefront of everyone's consciousness right now is police brutality mm -hmm. and how it's having a significant impact all over the world um, uh, with the recent events that have happened uh, with the tragic killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and just so many names that obviously we don't even have time to name of so many black men and women and children who've died at the hands of police. Um, given the climate of what's happening, do you think that has any correlation um, to how we are represented in media, uh, black people and police brutality? As much as people like to deny that media representation has a, you know, directly helps shape our attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors. Cops was just canceled after 32 years. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. Right. Because of the negative depictions of black people on that show. And I mean, it's pure propaganda, right? The glorification of the police going and apprehending uh, these animalistic black people. And so absolutely media representation plays a tremendous role in how, how we are treated in disseminating messages around Black people, Black culture, but also when we speak specifically about news media, mm -hmm. 
it plays, it has played, um, it plays both sides of the fence, depending upon what is happening in the world or who, you know, depending on the news cycle. So news media will focus its attention on black perpetrators of crimes. And you'll see this, uh, we always know when a, a crime occurs, a terrible crime occurs and you read it and it doesn't list the race of the person, you know that the person is white. Right. Because the identity of a U.S. citizen is considered by default to be white. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know if the accused is black because they will put black in the copy and they will take the worst photo they can find of a person <laughs> and put it up for everyone to see. So there's absolutely a, um, a disparity in how black and white people are portrayed in, in media. And media has, uh, news media needs social movements like the movement for black lives in order to generate ratings. And so we see in cycles with social movements, a very typical pattern that occurs. Initially, there is a lot of sympathetic coverage about, and the messaging is very clear, the aggrieved parties are doing X because they want Y, right? Mm -hmm. Over time, as institutions of power, as the government starts to crack down on protesters, media coverage shifts. And then the language becomes divisive and starts to portray the aggrieved in a negative light. The focus starts to move away from the issue and onto the protests and the lack of respectable behavior on the behalf of the protesters, despite the fact that by its very nature, Protests are supposed to be disruptive. Historically, protests, when you think about the Boston Tea Party, what did they, did they go out with white gloves, right? Right. And, and daintily sip their tea and then tip it over into the harbor? Absolutely not. It was an uprising and it is seen in a positive way. But when it comes to the issues that impact our community, somehow the way that we choose to protest is not seen as a protest, it's seen as a riot. So yes, the media absolutely plays a tremendous role in promoting 
the agenda of a social movement like what's happening right now, but they also can work to amplify and to highlight. But it, we have to be mindful of the way in which the government intercedes, the way that conservative executives who have relationships with the individuals who are seeking to tamp down on the protests intentionally start shifting the narrative. And invariably, those who are the most marginalized and oppressed find themselves on the harsh and receiving end of negative media messaging. Exactly. Preach. You know, I I just want to add to that because we had just uh, did a podcast a couple of weeks ago called Our Nation is Burning, talking about what's going on right now with the police brutality and the protests that are going on right now in our nation. And one of the things that really bothers me is whenever a Black person is killed um, on camera, the news media tends to show that in a loop over and over and over again. But when white people are killed on camera, and there are incidents where this has happened, you see it maybe once, and that's it. I I remember the incident with the woman journalist um, in Virginia who was executed on camera. I think it was was by a a black man, I think it was. And and that was it. It happened live on camera. I, I remember seeing it. It was on Twitter. And we didn't see anything else on the news after that. CNN didn't show it on a loop. MSNBC didn't show it on a loop. You know, you didn't see it on Cuomo Prime Time. You didn't see it on Rachel Maddow's show. But somehow when it is us being killed, you see George Floyd's image. I don't know how many times I've seen that video. Mike Brown and so many others. Ahmaud Arbery's killing. It, it just really rattles me that we as Black people see our deaths over and over and over again in a loop and the damage that makes does to our psyche Mm. and how that impacts us more. And white people don't see that for themselves. So that is something that needs to be addressed with the news media is the disparity there of how, you know, black people are seeing executions of themselves constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's trauma porn. I mean, period. Trauma porn. Yeah. yeah. It's trauma porn, and there's no respect for the sanctity of Black life and Black bodies, and Black and brown bodies, because I remember the photograph that circulated globally about the Syrian child that was lying dead in the, on the beach. I believe it was a Syrian child that died when the boat capsized. Right. If it wasn't Syrian, I apologize. It's been a little while. But the image stands out in my mind because they would never do that to a Swedish child. Blonde hair and blue eyes. No. And that is something that we have to contend with. It's a double, you know, it's a, it's, it is, I, there's a lot of debate about whether or not these videos, basically snuff films, are, mm-hmm. should be shown. Um, yeah. And on one hand, they do bring awareness to the fact that certain issues really exist. Like when Ray Rice 
was caught on video beating his then fiance, Janae. Right. He would never have been fired if there hadn't been video. The same thing, the mobilization around George Floyd's death is in large part because people watched a man die. Right. And the question that I saw raised on Twitter this morning was something to the effect of, I wonder if there would be more mobilization around Breonna Taylor if there had been video of her death. And I considered that. And I think on one hand, yes, there would be. But unfortunately, the way that our cis-heteropatriarchal world works is that Black women and Black women's issues are considered a subset of Black issues. So if you have two individuals who have been killed and are and, and their executions are on tape, I, I believe that due to the rampant sexism in misogynoir, that I'm not convinced that even with video, that we would be mobilizing and in the streets for a black woman, the way that we are for George Floyd. And this is a historical issue that we have faced as black women, where we do the work. And you think about Ida B. Wells and all of the work around anti-lynching that she's done, all the work that we've done over centuries, and yet because of patriarchy, we're shoved to the side, always. Right, and I kind of bring up a good point about Black women and how our issues are a subset. Uh, For me, I mean, I saw that with the rise of the Me Too movement and Time's Up, how oftentimes stories of Black women and what we've gone through are kind of overlooked. And then, you know, with our Kelly's and in, you know, in this case, the Russell Simmons situation, we're kind of seen as liars and we're not seen as, as, as true victims. And then also the burden on black women is that we want to protect black men. Um, mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Or how, you know, how did you even find the courage to speak up in your situation? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and address this. Oh, <laughs> that was of a course. Question. That was a big question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's good. I can dance. I can dance. <laughs> um, so, and and to give our uh, listeners some context, um, Salai is featured in the documentary on the record, where um, you, along with several survivors of a sexual assault perpetrated by uh, Russell Simmons. Um, you guys tell your stories in this documentary. Um, so yes, the, just to kind of, in case people aren't aware, um, if you can share um, your story with that. 
Sure, sure. So when we're talking about media representation, I mean, this, I think this is a, this is a perfect segue. Um, black women were were not considered rapeable. We were not even, I mean, we're not even human. We were property. Um, and so with the, with the way, I think one of the issues that has come to the foreground with me, the, the Me Too era is that news media and media in general focuses on acts of sexual violence that are perpetrated against white women right. and white women that fit a certain aesthetic. So initially you, the stories that were being told were all of Hollywood actresses, very um, famous, generally very famous women uh, around Harvey Weinstein. That was driving a lot of the news. It, in the past several years since Me Too arose as a phenomenon and then also as a separate organization with, that's held by Tarana Burke, there has been a dearth of reporting or any action taken against black male perpetrators of sexual violence. 90% of sexual assaults are intraracial. They're committed by a member of your own race. Mm -hmm. and black women and girls suffer from disproportionately high rates of gender violence, including sexual violence. So while the media is quick to show our quote deviancy through petty crimes um, on news broadcasts, they will not do any coverage on black women victims of sexual violence, even if it is perpetrated by someone famous. And that points to two issues. One, every woman's story is valid. One's perpetrator should not have to be famous in order for a survivor or victim, whatever they choose to refer themselves as, comes forward and says, me too. Mm -hmm. Everyone's story deserves to be told. But because of the classism and this obsession with celebrity in our culture, it is only those who have the misfortune of being assaulted by someone famous whose stories are actually told. So in the case of on the record, what we're doing is telling the stories of women who have been sexually 
assaulted by Russell Simmons, but we have faced tremendous opposition from the moment that the film was announced in order and, and have fought to, to be heard. You know, and there was a review that came out uh, that Shamira Ibrahim wrote for Pitchfork yesterday. And the, I forgot the entire sentence, but she said, you know, a film that almost became an urban legend. Wow. Because of the path that it has taken for us to be heard. And in my particular case, even prior to being in this film, I have had to fight multiple media conglomerates in order to be heard because my perpetrators had means and intimidated the first media outlet into not running my story, even though it was rigorously vetted and had cleared legal standards and practices, they killed it. Mm -hmm. And if it had not been for some, for, for my relation, existing relationships in media, my story would have been buried. Instead, it came out in The Hollywood Reporter eight months after it was supposed to have been published. Wow. And it was brutal. And even after that, my story was suppressed because of statements made by Russell Simmons and the other man that I accuse of assault, not rape, but he uh, had, had attacked me mm -hmm. and was arrested for this crime, A.J. Calloway. And unfortunately, the story you know, became one of how an individual has to really fight systems that work to silence survivors. I believe that if I had been white, I would not have had to go through these hoops. And if Russell Simmons accusers were white, similar to what happened with Bill Cosby, I believe that our stories would have been told. But I want to be very clear. It is not, I don't believe that there was a vendetta created by white women to take Bill Cosby out because, you know, he's trying to buy NBC or something, right? Like, right. I'm not it's saying that. Right. I'm simply saying his victims happened to be white women. And the media jumped on that because it falls into this larger archetype, historical racial stereotype of black men as being sexual predators who prey on white women. 
But that does not mean in this case that an extraordinarily wealthy and powerful black man did in fact sexually assault dozens of women. So it's, it's very challenging. You're right. We want to protect our men. It is true. There are false rape accusations made, but there are no more false rape accusations made than there are false claims of any other type of crime. And with, with respect to our, this need to protect, I think as a community, we have to be reflective of what we are protecting. On one hand, it is true. The criminal justice system is stacked against black people, period, not just black men. It's all black people. Right. They are women, men, trans, queer, straight. It doesn't matter. It is stacked against us. And so when there are perpetrators of violence in our community, we have to make a decision. Do we protect the perpetrator because of our loyalty to our race? Mm. Or do we choose to protect the victims and any other potential victims because of our loyalty to our race Mm. and to our gender? We need to have safety in this case for black women. I'm speaking about, about black women, but also Trans people suffer extraordinarily high rates of sexual violence. And I'm not parsing out trans and cis, trans women or women. I'm talking about trans men who are misgendered and put into women's jails and prisons and are assaulted, right? So, yeah. This is, there is this very serious issue around um, representation, about the way the media suppresses our stories, the way the media chooses to frame our stories, but yet also how complicated it is for us as a community when we are forced to deal with an issue which is so incredibly contentious, which is sexual violence, it is one that, you know, you know how we are, what happens in the home stays in the home, you know, what happens in our community stays in the community, and we don't want white people to see this about us. But at the same time, it's like, look, if you have someone who is exploiting and hurting your own people, we have to take a stand. Right. I believe that is true racial solidarity. Racial solidarity has to cross all lines, class, gender, sexual orientation, all of that. We cannot continue to prioritize the lives of black men, even those who rape black women because of historical racial tropes. We have to face the fact that sexual violence is a 
is a literal pandemic. It is considered by the World Health Organization a global women's health issue. And that our sisters need to be protected. And that comes first. Exactly. I remember that AJ Calloway story, by the way, and that got buried with a quickness because I remember hearing about it. And then like over the weekend, crickets. I didn't hear anything else about that. So um, it's just interesting how the media uh, decides to release a story. And I think they released it on weekend, which that's a bit of a trick in journalism. If you're going to release something, do it over the weekend. People forget about it on Monday. You release a new story and people, you know, move on to the next thing. Um, Well, what happened, if I can briefly speak on that, you're referring that the story you're referring to is when it was when NBC was alerted to the fact that there were women, additional women outside of me who were going on the record to say that he had raped Mm -hmm. them. And so once they got wind of that and they were asked for comment, they did exactly what you said. They preempted the release of the story with their own story, which was he was suspended pending an investigation into multiple allegations against him, suspended to pay. And that became the dominant narrative. So the story came out, which detailed his behavior and the experiences of these women that was subsumed. No one cared. The only story was, oh my gosh, AJ from 106 and Park, he's been suspended from his job. What's going on? But the interesting thing is the way the media can silence survivors, we as survivors can utilize the media in order to affect social change. And so after I was interviewed by outside organization that NBC had hired to do this investigation into the various allegations made against AJ. I participated and my attorney had reached out a few times to them asking, what's the status? What are you doing? And they had, and the answer was always, we have nothing to say. There's nothing, it's still ongoing, et cetera, et cetera. Well, finally, when the CEO of the organization was on the cover of a magazine, I just called them out on social media. Mm. And I asked, and I asked them, what's the status? Is he still an employee? What is the outcome of the investigation? I just called them out. And within 45 minutes, my attorney had a call from from that company telling us that he had been let go. Wow. You know, I noticed the tools at your disposal. Absolutely. I noticed something um, 
to kind of going back to what you were saying about Black women and misogynoir and, you know, the Me Too movement and Believe Women. And I'm, I'm kind of just disgusted at the reactions uh, towards a lot of feminists that support this, but cherry pick it. Um, because there's a lot of inconsistency with it, to be honest. Uh, obviously, the Me Too movement favors white women more than it does women of color. But even in politics, I noticed that, you know, there's a lot of, like you mentioned, you said the word classism, um, and you mentioned like celebrity and influence, and obviously things like wealth and access are, are things that um, favor uh, the perpetrator over the victims. But in politics, uh, Republicans over Democrats, in the case of Joe Biden, as of late, it, it seems to be, you know, his victim is also being suppressed um, compared to Kavanaugh's victim with uh, Dr. Ford. So why do you think there's so much? Uh, well, actually, I'm going to go past that question because you, you pretty much addressed it in, in the last uh, part of what you would discuss. But uh, I guess I just wanted to get that out the way. That That's my little political rant because that that really burns me um when i when i see that women are feminists saying you know believe women me too movement um but they don't get behind all women when it you know i guess doesn't benefit them um but my my next question is about oprah winfrey um so she decided at the last minute to drop the um on the record documentary before sundance um, but she does stand behind you and the other survivors in this film. So how do you how did you feel about that when you got that news? When I found out that Oprah had decided to remove herself from the project, I wasn't surprised. Mm. I mean, this in, the entire process of coming forward for me has been fraught with so many obstacles that I'm of the mindset, you know, until the check's cleared, <laughs> you know, don't count your money. Mm. And the same thing, you know, there was, I, I don't know why she ultimately decided to depart the project. She said that it was due to creative differences. And she also said that Russell pressured her, but she did not leave because of Russell and that she believes us. So it's my opinion is it's her prerogative to do whatever she wants as a business person. She doesn't have to stay involved with the project if she doesn't want to. And I, and perhaps it's my cynicism, you know, with my work over the years, not only as a survivor in navigating legal systems and um, organizations and institutions attempting to address gender violence and seeing some of the abject futility um, in, in some areas of the work, and then you know, here is a film that has 
focus on the experiences of one, black women, and then two, black women who, whose perpetrator is the godfather of hip hop. Right. And who has tremendous amount of resources at his disposal to weaponize and try to um, squash the story. So my feeling, I was numb, I was disappointed, but I knew that the film would eventually find a home. Right, and it has. Yeah, and it has HBO Max. Exactly. Listen, HBO is uh, a more bigger and popular, uh, I, I would think, you know, cable, network and and has more access to viewers um no shade to apple by the way but hbo has been around longer so um you know congrats to you guys getting it on hbo by the way congrats to you guys having a hundred percent uh rating on rotten tomatoes so the critics obviously love the film as well um so final question to you what advice do you have for women out there who are silent and they're not ready to tell their stories for fear that they'll be ostracized by their peers or even the public. Well, there is no prescription. And I, I, I as much as I'd like to be prescriptive, I, I, I can't in good conscience. Um, I think you know, any, any survivor who is wrestling with coming forward, I would say that if you choose not to come forward, that's not a wrong choice. Everyone has to make a decision based upon what they know about their own safety, their own community, um, and At the same time, if they don't feel, if they do feel safe to come forward, to know that it is challenging, absolutely. But at the same time, it, at least I can speak for myself, has been profoundly liberating. When I first, when I, when I, I wrote about the rape in both of my books, the first one, No More Drama, published in 2007, and then also in Black Lotus that was published in 2016. And when I've done talks and given speeches at Take Back the Night in different um, colleges, I've spoken extensively on the subject of rape and being a survivor. And by being open about about what happened to me, I'm clearly delineating that there is a difference between who I am and what happened to me. That I am so much more than a survivor of rape. Right. Rape is the action and the shame that so many of us feel 
needs to be lifted from our shoulders and placed onto that of the perpetrators. That's where it belongs. So if you choose to come forward, it can be very liberating and freeing. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that for certain people, it's not going to be safe. And if you choose not to do it, it doesn't make you a coward. It's an incredibly personal decision. But if at the very least, if you watch the film, if you're listening to this interview, if you're reading stories in the news, know that even the act of being able to admit to yourself, you know what, back in college, when I was with that guy and I said no, but we got in that wrestling match and then I just gave up and just let him do it. Like, we can name that. We can say, no, that was rape. Right. You did not consent. We can have an opportunity within our own minds to own it. So then we can start to address the trauma that's suppressed because of the fact that we've denied that our right to bodily autonomy was violated. And there is liberation that can occur simply on an individual level by admitting the truth to ourself. So there are many ways in which one can say me too, and it doesn't always have to be public, but in whatever way that you do it, there, it, is, it is a hard path because you're, if you only admit it to yourself, eventually you're going to have to address it. And I encourage any survivor to seek assistance. Counselors are available out there that work specifically on this issue. I am right now seeing a trauma specialist because... I've been reactivated by participating in this project because I'm constantly talking about this rape and because people know who my perpetrator is finally. So, um, so yeah, that is, that's what I would have to say. And I, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, I can personally say that I can relate and, you know, my truth has been seeing a, my perpetrator and looking him in the eye and seeing that I'm not, victimized because of what he did and Mm -hmm. for me it's you know telling my daughter about consent and what's right and what's wrong so that that for me is my liberation so I thank you for acknowledging that um that it's an individual journey for each person um so thank you but I also uh you know what can we look forward from you in the future um how can we learn more about you your story your activism your causes um did you want to tell us about that well The first thing that y'all are going to see is the big announcement when I graduate from college. (laughs) So so right now my focus is is on school and my focus is on um, continuing to do um, 
activism around gender violence, um, not in a in a structured way like I was pre pre pre. I was gonna say preschool, but that sounds funny. But <laughs> before I matriculated, um, and um, but you know to speak out and to use my voice whenever I can um, on the behalf of other survivors and on the issue, um, and then once I graduate, um, looking to um, really jump back into this full time and and really complete what was started with truth and reality. Um, and I see a pivot, there's a pivot um, in terms of the focus of the organization because so much change has happened around media representation, our media representation since the organization was founded in 2012. And, um, quite frankly, taking some time to focus on me. So you may see less of me. I'll be much more specific, but, you know, I'm getting to be an old lady now. <laughs> and, uh, I need to be able to sit back and relax for a moment. And and self-care is so important. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to prioritize some self-care. But I'm not going away. Much to the chagrin of the people who hurt me. <laughs> right. Well, did you want to share with us your your Twitters, your Instagrams, whatever you know you're out there, you know, speaking with us, or did you want to share yeah. that? Sure, sure. I'm on Twitter. Um, it's Salai S is in Sam I L underscore L A I, and that's my only social handle because. I quit Facebook years ago, and I don't have Instagram. All right. Well, <laughs> perfect. Um, we're at Black Girl Nerds, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, um, telling us your story. Um, you know, I've, I feel like I've gotten to know you just in this short period of time, so I, I thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And best of luck with everything with black girl nerds thank you for providing this platform for girls like us yeah. and um i'm looking forward to um staying in yeah, touch don't be a stranger please come back anytime Perfect. all right thank, thank you. you well well all thank right. you thank you so much bye guys bye, bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.